All right, guys, we're gonna go ahead and get started. Um, does everybody have one of the sheets from back there? Yes. Okay. All right, let me start by praying and then we'll go we'll dive in. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this evening or time together, Lord. I just pray and ask that you would give uh, me clarity as I'm sharing uh, these things tonight uh, about your covenants and your scripture. Lord, I pray that you will just give me uh, clear thoughts, clear words, and that um, you will just help these ladies to understand um, what uh, we are teaching. But I pray that you will just use this not only for um, knowledge, but I pray that this can be a uh, just time in your word of edification and building each other up and just us studying scripture together, Lord. And Lord, I just pray that you will use it in our hearts um, as we go tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so covenant theology. Um, was anybody not here last week or, or you guys were not, but did you listen to the stuff? Okay. So I thought I would just do a quick little overview um, and then we'll dive right in to what we're going to talk about. So uh, we have last week, we talked about uh, three different main covenants that um, we that we see in scripture. And I'm going to draw our thing back on the board that we had last week. So I don't know if you guys, I, I did upload it, but it was like late. So I was like, I don't know if people actually see this or not. Um, so we have the covenant of redemption, which was the one kind of down here at the bottom which is the uh, pre-temporal inter-Trinitarian covenant that is to redeem the elect. Okay, so that is the covenant that was before time that is between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to redeem the elect. Okay? And so then the next one is the covenant of works. And that was kind of once time began and humans were created, this was the initial covenant that God established with Adam, right? And this is the one where Adam was the federal head. He was set up to, um, if you remember, we talked about that it was not a, if you do this, then I will bless you. It was, you are blessed. Here's how you maintain that blessing, live in that relationship with God, right? And so that is the covenant of works. And then, as we all know, what happened? They fell, right? And immediately after the fall, sin has now entered the world. God establishes this next covenant, the covenant of grace, Kind of within the covenant of works, right? So this is the grace. And we looked last week, just kind of at the very beginning here, where we had with Adam, where he is establishing um, that initial uh, promise of the Messiah in Genesis 3.15, where... Uh, the Messiah will come one day and will crush the enemy of God's people, right? So that is very quickly in a nutshell what we covered last week. <laughs> so now our first covenant we're going to talk about tonight is the Noahic covenant. So the covenant with Noah. And if you remember, last week we talked about 
kind of the way these work, and we're going to see this across the board, is that they, over time, we are getting more clarity, more information about this one big covenant, right? None of these covenants are going to like fully replace the other. It's just we're kind of building it as we go, right? Each one kind of stands alone, but it's within the context of the larger thing. So if you will turn to Genesis 9. We're going to start looking at Noah. So I am assuming all of you know the story of Noah, right? Um, When you see, so kind of the story of Noah starts back in chapter 6, and it's describing... um, how sin has entered the world and is now kind of running rampant, right? It has been multiple generations, and the world is completely wicked, right? It says in 6.6, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Okay, so he, Lord kind of looks out and only sees evil, uh, but Noah finds favor in the sight of God. And Um, From there, God covenants with Noah to save him and his family and two of every animal. And they build the boat. They all get on. God brings the rain. And he destroys all living things on the earth in that moment, right? And so the only things that survive are Noah and his family and the animals that are on the boat. And eventually the waters recede. The flood goes away, um, and Noah and his family get off the boat into this new world. And so I I put on here Genesis 9. It's actually Genesis 8.20 is where the covenant starts. Um, So let's look at 8.20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Okay, so we see kind of in that moment God's intention of what this covenant is we're about to kind of continue reading about. So the Noahic covenant is how I've described it here is it's God's gracious commitment to preserve creation until the final judgment. So he is saying, I'm going to continue on with creation, keep creation the way it is. And it is designed to preserve human society so that the work of redemption can move forward. Right. So it is allowing that promised Messiah we had last time to be able to continue to come. Because had God destroyed all mankind, there could be no Messiah coming from Eve, right? There had to be a through line there. So uh, these are the same kind of headings that we were using last week, the parties, promises, conditions, signs. Not all of them are going to have all the things, like some of them are kind of implied, but if, if it doesn't, if it really wasn't there, it kind of left it off. But um, so, who are the parties of the Noahic covenant? It is God and all living creatures, right? If you look in verse nine or chapter nine, verse thirteen, 
it describes it. Um, the I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Right? So this is, it's not just people, it's everything, right? He is making this covenant between himself and everything, basically, the earth, okay? So what is God promising to do in this covenant? So most of it is back up where we just read in 821. He promises he's not going to curse the ground because of man. Uh, he's not going to strike down every living creature again. Uh, the natural functions of the world will remain until as long as the world remains. So like I think he describes it as like seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer, winter, like the seasons are going to keep rolling. The sun is going to keep going around, or not the sun, we're going to keep going around the sun, you know, you, you, like sun is going to set every day. Like it's the natural world is going to continue. He is promising that. Um, oh, I, don't, I didn't put the reference on that one. It's 8, what, 22? Um, and that God will not destroy the earth with a flood. You see that in verse 11 of chapter 9. Um, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So he is just promising, I'm not going to destroy everything again. Okay? So what are the conditions of this? Well, there are no conditions, right? This is commonly known as the common grace covenant, right? So in scripture, there are two kind of uh, types of grace. There is common grace, which means it is for everyone. It doesn't matter if you are a believer or not. It doesn't matter if you're human or a dog or a cat. You're all getting the common grace, right? Like all living creatures benefit from God's common grace and the blessings of that. Um, there are and while this is a common grace covenant, there are particular, there is a special particular grace in there as well, because in this covenant, God is preserving that line of the Messiah, right? So while it is a common grace, you can see that thread of the special grace through it, so it, it, where it connects to the larger covenant of grace. All right. Um, and then finally, the sign of it. I think this is probably the most famous sign in the, in the Bible, right? It's the rainbow. We all know God put the rainbow in the sky to show that he wasn't going to destroy the world anymore. And it's just an ongoing symbol of God's common grace. So anytime you see it, you know, it is a reminder. I love that it, in, in the scripture, it's not saying it's a reminder to us. It's a reminder to God. Like God is saying... Like, uh, where, uh, it's, uh, verse 15, when I see it, I will remember my covenant. That was between, so he's like, you know, this is for God to remember. You're not going to destroy these people yet, right? Like, you are going to wait until the final judgment. I just think that's a cool detail to think about, like, where, I think I mentioned last week that I, after I was studying this one night, the next day I saw this rainbow and it was just like, it's just a different perspective to think like God is seeing this and is remembering his covenant and remembering to be patient. And, you know, like, I don't know. It just was a cool thought that, you know, he is seeing that as a reminder for himself. Um, 
And then uh, the image of the rainbow returns in Revelation 4.3. It talks about that the rainbow is around the throne of God. And so it's just another reminder that we will have for eternity that he is the never-failing, or reminder of the never-failing grace of the covenant maker. You know, like for eternity, we get to see this rainbow and be reminded of his grace to his people. Um, And then the last thing just to mention is we're not really going to read through much of this, but as you are reading through uh, chapter 9 here, it's impossible not to notice the parallels between Genesis 1 and 2 with Adam and Eve and in chapter 9. So like in uh, verse 1 of chapter 9, it's he blesses Noah, he blessed Adam, uh, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon the birds of the heaven. So he's, he's giving them be fruitful, multiply, and have dominion over the world, which is exactly what he told Adam and Eve. Um, he gives them like, um, for Adam and Eve, he gave them like a plant that they weren't supposed to eat. For Adam and Eve, he gives them instructions on, well, now you can eat uh, animals. Like, so he's just like, it's very like, it's different, but it's paralleled. So it's, a, it's an interesting study that I would encourage you to read through both and just like look at the parallels of how Noah is just reflected in Adam as well. Like it's a very similar uh, setup. So any questions on the Noahic? We kind of rushed through that one, but it's because we got, we got a lot to cover. Um, any questions there? Anything that doesn't make sense? Okay. All right, so we're going to move on to the Abrahamic Covenant. And now I will say probably this is the one that most people know and think about when they think of the covenants. Uh, This is probably the most, at least for me, that was the most famous one before I really started studying them. So we're a couple chapters from Noah. Uh, We're in chapter 12 is where uh, the Abrahamic Covenant starts. And so... So we're going to start in chapter 1, or chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, so right from the get-go, we... It's very obvious who the parties of this covenant are. The Lord and Abram, right? At this point in time, his name is not Abraham, it's Abram. Um, So God is talking with Abram, and he promises him numerous things in these three uh, verses, right? He promises him that there's going to be a land that God is going to show him. He promises to make Abram a great nation, promises to bless him, promises to make his name great. Uh, He's going to be a blessing to anyone who blesses him and a curse to anyone who dishonors him. And all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through Abram. So most people, when they are referring to all of these blessings, boil it down to three things. I'm listed there. Land, seed, and blessing. 
Okay, so they're promised land. That one's easy. It's pretty explicit in there. When God promises to make him a great nation, he's saying, you are going to have so many descendants, they're going to make a nation. Well, to have descendants, you must have children, right? So he's promising him children and to, that those children will become a nation. So that's what people mean when they say seed. And then blessing. God is promising to bless Abram and his descendants uh, as a people. Okay, so we have land, seed, and blessing. If you remember nothing else about the Abrahamic covenant, remember those three things. <laughs> land, seed, blessing. If you have a fourth or sixth grader, even those, they, those three, they can tell you those three. <laughs> land, seed, blessing. <laughs> so, because that is, you will see those three repeatedly promised over and over and over and over and over again to Abraham to Isaac, to Jacob, to the tribes, to everyone, all throughout uh, the rest of the Old Testament, you're going to see kind of those promises over and over again. So what are the conditions that are set up um, in these three verses? So God tells Abram to go from his country, go from your kindred, and go from your father's house. And so he's got to leave. He's got to go if you now i the furthest i have ever lived from here is bowling green which was not that far away <laughs> so but i can imagine leaving going away from the country you know you're the customs there you know what it's like you know how to you know operate in that society your family those are the people who know you the best you know like you it's there's a, a comfortableness to that and then your father's house, that is, there's, especially in this day and age, like that day and age that we're talking about here, like that's the source of your wealth. That is the source of your livelihood. Everything in your life is tied up to your father's house. So for Abram to leave is, he's leaving everything behind. Nothing is going to be comfortable for him. And then uh, to go to a land that God's going to show him. So he's got to leave where he's at and go to somewhere, right? Like, doesn't really know where it's going to be. Like, just kind of start walking, and I'll tell you when you get there, you know? And then uh, the third one is to be a blessing. This kind of goes back to what we talked about last week of, like, where the blessings and the commands are kind of intertwined here, where it's like, you need to go be a blessing. Like, be blessed. Just go, I'm going to bless you and go be blessed out in the world, (laughs) you know? So, like, part of being part of God's family is just being a blessing. So that's part of the conditions here. Um, so, so that is what Abram is told to do. But what is interesting is when we get to the penalty part. Okay, Because normally in a covenant, it would be here are the conditions, and if you don't do any of those, then the covenant will be broken. But let's turn over to chapter 15. Okay, so that chapter 12, God is kind of giving Abram the, uh, all the details of the covenant. They're calling it, they normally call it like when Abram is called at that point. And 15 is where the covenant is actually established. Okay, so let's look in verse 7. And so at this point, um, Abram is kind of talking with the Lord of like, how do I, how do I know that this is going to happen? Like, I trust you, but how do I know? And so the Lord... Um, tells him, actually, let's go down to verse 9. 
And God says to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he, Abram, brought God all these, cuts them in half, and laid each over against the other. So Abram brings him all these animals, he cuts them in half and lays them out. Uh, Let's jump down to verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. So at this point, we have the animals laying out. Abram is over there passed out, okay? Abram is no longer a part of what's about to happen, okay? Like he is, he cut the animals in half and then went over to go to sleep over there. Uh, Jump down to 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offering, I give you this land to the river of Egypt, to the great river Euphrates, and then lots of other places there. Um, So when God walks through this, you'll notice that he is two things. He's a fire pot and a torch. So he at this moment is taking on both parties of the covenant to walk through. So normally in this day and age, this would, somebody would do this, they would split the animals, they would both walk through, and if you, we're not going to turn there, but if you look in Jeremiah 34, 18 through 20, it describes this process there. And it's saying, when they walk through, they are saying, if I break this covenant, I will be like these animals. I will be dead and cut in two. So when God takes on both parties and walks through, he is accepting all of the responsibility of this covenant upon himself. Like I said, Abraham's over there asleep somewhere, and God is assuming all responsibility of this oath. And it's, just in case you were interested, it's called a self-maledictory oath. It means a vow, vowing harm to oneself. Okay, so he is saying, if I break this covenant, I will die. And as we all know, God can't die, so God can't break this oath, right? Like, it is just not possible that this oath is going to be broken, okay? Um, So then, the signs. So we have two, three potentially. uh, In verse 5 of chapter 15, uh, God takes Abram out and shows him the stars and says, these the stars are a sign of the covenant. They're they're gonna you're gonna have this many descendants basically. He also later on it's not in this passage. He refers to the sand, so you can see that kind of as a, also a sign um, where he says, "Go out, number the grains of sand. That's what your descendants are gonna be." And so for us, we can go out and look at a starry night, and it's a visual visual representation of like even now God is saving people into this covenant family of Abraham's. You know, like, he is still, that covenant is still alive and active. He's still saving people into it. Um, But arguably, the more important sign here is circumcision, right? So if you turn to chapter 17, uh, verse, verse 10, this is my covenant that you, which you shall keep between you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So God establishes this as a physical representation 
for all of the male descendants of Abraham that they will be set apart for God. It is a physical representation of that covenant sign. So it, this also is kind of the, we first kind of see those first thoughts of this is a familial thing, right? When it is in, when you are circumcised at this point in time, it is indicating that you are part of this covenant family. It's not a saving thing. It's not saying if you are circumcised, you are saved. It is just saying you are part of this covenant family. And then we see that later on translated, we'll cover that next week, with baptism. That it is a sign of the covenant that you are part of it. Right? It doesn't save you. It just is that representation. And then, well, we'll, we'll get to that next week. But it opens it up to all of us in this room because none of us can be circumcised. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, the Abrahamic covenant at the end of the day especially highlights the promises of God. Okay? It is because God is the one doing it, he's taking on both, he is showing the promises that this covenant of grace is going to give us, right? That is going to give us a land, a nation, a blessing, all these things. And God has promised to carry those out. Does that make sense? Any questions? I think because um, if Abram had walked through it too, then it would be contingent on Abram holding his side of it. Because it is solely God, it is um, not contingent on Abraham at all. Like you, and it's the same with us, like with, even in the new covenant with Christ, he did all of it. I am, Abraham was chosen. He did not deserve it at all. And he could not have upheld his side. He was bound to fail. We're about to see that the Mosaic covenant. They are doomed to fail from the beginning. And so God is saying, I'm taking all of it because I'm the only one who can actually uphold this. So it makes it purely on God's, because, I mean, I don't want to be responsible because <laughs> I know I'm going to fail, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Well, the other ones were, but the other ones were, are, are there other ones that are like that too, where it's just him? But I just wonder why it's specifically yeah. this one. Um, I think, like, when you look at the uh, covenant of works, obviously that was God and, and Adam. Yeah. But even the, and, and Adam failed <laughs> immediately. And so when you look at the covenant of grace, it's really, there aren't, like the original one we talked about with Adam, there are no conditions really set up. It's just God promising, I'm going to send a Messiah. And so it's kind of the establishment of the covenant of grace, but there's at that point no conditions set up. With Noah, there's no conditions set up. There, it's just, I am going to be gracious to all of earth. This is the first time there are kind of conditions there, and he is saying, I know you're going to fail. Mm-hmm. Right, so you go asleep, and I'm going to walk through it on my own. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Any other questions? Okay, let's go move on to the Mosaic Covenant. So... I think the mo- or by far the Mosaic Covenant causes the most confusion here because 
there are conditions that are set out. So uh, before we get into that, just one note, you will see this a lot of times referenced as the old covenant. Uh, next, we're going to talk about the new covenant. People will talk about this as the old covenant. Just wanted you to be aware if you are reading stuff, if someone says the old covenant, this is specifically what they are referring to, the Mosaic covenant. So in Reformed theology and covenant theology, there are different schools of thought here where the Mosaic covenant is sometimes seen as instead of being a part of this covenant of grace, uh, they see it as a republication of the covenant of works. Okay, so they are saying that this Mosaic covenant is being established as a way for people to be saved. Okay, kind of to boil it down. It's more complicated than that, I'm sure, but that's kind of how I understand it. I disagree with that because I think it is very clear that this is couched so much in grace. Okay, so we're going to walk through that, but just know there are people out there that think of this because they see it as conditions and law, that it's um, not a gracious thing. They see it as like God setting up this, like, this is how the people were saved kind of thing. Okay, so just wanted to put that out there. If you have questions about that, I don't, we can, we can research it together. <laughs> I researched it enough to know I don't agree with that. And then went this way. So, all right. So let's turn to Exodus. Uh, we're going to turn to Exodus 2. So, so since we left Abraham, uh, you know, the people, Abraham did eventually have a son, uh, Isaac, and then Isaac had a son, Jacob, and then Jacob had 12 kids. And then they, you know, were, uh, went to Egypt with the famine and were protected by Joseph and Joseph uh, was kind of in charge for a while, and then Joseph eventually dies, and the people are taken into slavery, uh, into captivity, and uh, it's kind of where we pick them up in Exodus, right? So they're slaves in Egypt, and uh, if you look at chapter 2, verse 23, toward the end, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groanings, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Okay, so at this point, Moses is telling us God saw the people and he remembered the covenant. And so whatever he's about to do is because of the covenant that he already did. So theologians say that that means that this is like part of it. It's not that he was like, oh, well, the people are really suffering. Let me give them a new way of salvation over here. He's saying, no, God remembered his covenant. He is saying, like, he's clearly connecting the line here of saying that it's going from the covenant with Abraham to what is about to happen. Okay. But then if we turn to Galatians 3.17, go to the other end of the Bible. Uh, it says 
This is what I mean. So, God, so we're in the middle here, Paul kind of talking about the law and the covenants and all the. So he's explaining this. This is what I mean. The law, a.k.a. the Mosaic Covenant, which came 430 years afterward, after the Abrahamic Covenant, which he refers to a little earlier, uh, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So he's, he's saying here, when the Mosaic Covenant came, it didn't nullify the Abrahamic Covenant. Like, they're the same, they're, it's just like a advancement of it. You know, it's the same kind of through line. Okay? So even Paul is kind of saying, like, these are one continuous promise from God. Okay? So from there, back to, back to Exodus, let's turn over to Exodus 19. It's where we see the beginnings of this. So um, from when we read in chapter 2 to now, God has freed his people from Egypt and has brought them out. And they, have now, they are now kind of at the base of Mount Sinai. Okay? And we see... We're about to, when we read this, that from the get-go, God's, this, these promises he's about to make, this covenant he's putting together, is based on God's mercy and grace. Okay, so let's look in verse 19, I'm sorry, chapter 19, verse 4. Uh, you yourselves, he's talking to the Israelites, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So he's saying, I already redeemed you from from Egypt, like in the Exodus. Like I saved you already. Like it's not like you're going to have to work for me to, to save you. I've saved you already. You know, you're not there anymore. Then verse five. Uh, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. So he's saying, I already saved you. Now, here's what I'd like you to do. Here's the requirement that I'm giving you after I've already saved you. So it's not do this so that I'll save you. It's I've saved you. Now here's what you should do. So that you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So he's saying, I've already redeemed you from in the Exodus. Here's the requirement that I... I'm asking of you after I've saved you. And the reward, it's obviously not salvation because I already saved you from Egypt. It's so that you can be blessed in being in this special relationship with the God who has already saved you. So it's very similar to what we saw with Adam, right? It's what we saw with Noah. It's all, you know, God is, he didn't tell Noah, do all these things and then I'll save you. It's, no, I'm going to save you. Now here is what I, you know, he, he saves to be, he blesses from the beginning. And so in this, he has already redeemed his people. Now here's what they need to do to continue being blessed in that special relationship as God's chosen people. Okay? Um, so then we see, so kind of from there, we see this play out kind of in three stages, if you will. Okay, so uh, if you look in verse 7 and 8, God 
So Moses kind of calls all the people and tells them the law. And so this, chronologically, this is happening, like, back with chapter 24. Chapter 24 and this are happening simultaneously. So the law has already been given to them, or to Moses on Mount Sinai. And he's coming down. And they, so he gives them the law. And the people, all the people, answer together in verse 8. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. So Israel pledges to follow the Lord in everything that he's told them to do. And then uh, we see in verse 9 that God gives them instructions on how they need to be clean, cleansed, okay? To be able to... uh, Actually, I'm sorry. Moses has not gotten the law at this point. He is about to go after. I'm sorry. I'm getting my my bullet points mixed up. So all Moses tells them is that God has said, you need to follow my law. He has not actually given them the law. But they say, without hearing the law, we will do that. We will follow your law. And then he says, okay, now you need to be cleansed. And so he gives them instructions. It's in verses 9 through 15 of like, what all they need to do to prepare themselves to be able to get the law from the Lord, okay? And this is similar to us, right? Of like, you are not, uh, it's not a, you do all of this work and then God will cleanse you. God cleanses you, he redeems you, he gives you, like, cleanses you, and then you're able to serve and follow his law, right? So it's it's kind of the cart before the horse kind of thing of, like, we, in our brains, I think as humans, we think of it as, if I clean myself up enough, then God will save me. But this is saying, I'm going to cleanse you, and then you'll be able to receive my law. Does that make sense? It's... Um, Sorry, I got a little confused there at the beginning. <laughs> um, and so when Christ dies for us, he gives us his righteousness. And then we are able to serve God from there. So so once they kind of, this, the, they agree to this covenant, then Moses goes and he gets the law. Okay. And so um, you see in Exodus 20 that... Um, it's the Ten Commandments, which really are just kind of a representation of the law overall. It's not, uh, there's lots more laws given all throughout Genesis through X, or, uh, Deuteronomy, right? There's, there's lots of law there, okay? But the Ten Commandments are kind of the, what's the right word? Like the distilled, like the, the, the meat of it, if you will, okay? And if you look at Leviticus, 18.5. Let's turn there. Leviticus 18.5. It says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So that means that if one is able to keep the entire law perfectly without sin, they can find justification there. So yes, you can find justification 
in the law, technically. <laughs> but, as we are all very well aware, Christ is the only one who has ever been able to flawlessly keep the law without committing sin, right? So, the law, this the Mosaic Covenant, was never intended to be a means of justification for Israel. Its purpose is there to establish the standard for holiness that God requires, right? It is there to, to let the people of Israel know, here's what I require, and they will never measure up, okay? So if we look at the ritual of the law, the next section, built into the law, time and time again, there are so many areas where God builds it into the code of the law, sacrifices and rituals and regulations that provide atonement for their sins temporarily, right? So he knows, God knew that Israel would not be able to measure up. He knew they would fail. He knew they would need atonement. And so he built it in, into it. You know, it wasn't that they failed and then he had to go back and put it in. No, like before they even agreed to the covenant, it was in there. It's in the law. And so it's providing this temporary means of grace for them that's pointing to the permanent solution that's coming and the one who will be able to fulfill the Mosaic covenant, right? So it is this shadow of the thing that's coming pointing to it. So it is not this where, you know, a person who says, well, no, this is a just, this is just the republication of the covenant of works because it's setting up like, here's what you have to do. It's like, but no, God built in the grace from the get-go, right? Like he's saying very clearly, like, no, like if I'm providing all these means for them to receive atonement, that means he knew they couldn't live up. And so he's providing grace to them at the beginning of it. Does that make sense? Um, and this, if you, uh, in Hebrews 10, talks a lot about this, about Christ being this uh, fulfillment of this. So um, Hebrews, by the way, is a great book if you, when you're studying the covenants, because it just talks so much about all of it, of, um, and just how Christ is the better <coughs> everything we're talking about. Christ is better. We're going to talk about Hebrews a lot, a lot next week. So, <laughs> so. The Mosaic Covenant is uniquely a covenant of with law, of law, but ultimately it is a covenant of grace. It's wrapped into the very code, the necessity for forgiveness and grace, right? God wrote it into it from the get-go that forgiveness and grace were needed. So it's not this covenant of works. It's a covenant of grace. It's part of the covenant of grace. It provides, because you think about our expanding thing here. You know, we, we had this, this the, the, just the wisp of a promise here that a Messiah was coming. And then God provides grace. He's provided grace all the way out to make sure that the world is going to stay. He's not going to judge the world early. The promises are given. They're expanded here. We have the, the wisp of a promise here. And then up here, it's, we have the full kind of like, what is it going to look like with this nation, with uh, this group of people. And then here we are, it's kind of the set, the standard of what is God requiring for this to happen? Because if we don't have this, Christ down here, we're like, well, wait, what was he dying for if we don't know why we failed? 
Does that make sense? So quickly, we've been through most of this already, but the parties of the covenant, the Mosaic covenant is God and Israel. God, Israel is the one that is a covenanting with God at this point. Uh, Moses is, is just the mediator of it all through uh, 19 through kind of 24. You, Moses is just like back and forth. Like God told Moses this, Moses gives the people, Moses, then it's back, it's just back and forth <laughs> between Moses or between the people and God. Uh, the, the promises that he has uh, is that people will be a treasured possession. Uh, there'll be a kingdom of priests and there'll be a holy nation. So he's saying, you know, you will be my special people, right? Uh, the conditions that they agree to is that they will obey God's voice and keep his covenant. And then uh, in, tw- in chapter 24, they say they will be obedient to God's law. And so they are agreeing to be obedient to what he has put before them. Uh, the penalty is these are, um, if we turn to Leviticus 26, these are intense. Uh, Leviticus 26, we'll just read the kind of the first little bit here. Verse 14. Uh, oh, actually, oh, I'm in chapter 25. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant. So if you don't obey or don't abide by the covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consumes the eyes and makes the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies. And it literally just goes on and on. <laughs> Like and the and Deuteronomy twenty eight fifteen is exactly the same thing. So if you break my covenant, things are going to be very bad for you, right? God is going to kind of just ruin you. Okay. Um. So then the last thing there is the sign. So in Exodus thirty one, God establishes the Sabbath for. Um, the sign of the covenants of this 31 12 and the Lord said to Moses you are to speak to the people of Israel and say above all you shall keep my Sabbath for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I the Lord sanctify you you shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you everyone who profanes it shall be put to death whoever does any work on it that scroll shall be cut off from among his people so God establishes this day of rest, the Sabbath, is the day that's kind of, it's a sign of their covenant to God. So, um, so as much as the Abrahamic covenant was there to especially highlight the promises of God, this covenant is there to especially highlight the demands of holiness that God has. For his people, right? That it is uh, his. You have you have to be perfect, right? You have to be perfect. And now he pro- provides, like we said, he provides grace in that. But that doesn't mean that the standard isn't 
perfection, right? All right, any questions on the Abrahamic covenant? All right, so the last one we're going to cover tonight is the Davidic covenant. So it is 2 Samuel chapter 7. Um, What's funny is we literally just taught this Sunday morning to the kids. <laughs> it made me laugh because I was like, y'all, I could, I could talk about this for days, but they weren't as interested <laughs> as I was. <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, chapter 7, 2 Samuel. Uh, David, you know the story of David. David has uh, was promised to be king because Saul was king. Uh Saul broke um, or disobeyed God. And so God told him he would not be king anymore. And David was made king back, I think from, I think we said from here, it was probably like 15, 20 years ago. Um, And he and Saul fought a lot. Eventually Saul dies and David is made king um, in first Judah and then eventually all of Israel. And so this is kind of right after uh, David has been made king in all of Israel. David then moves the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem where David is establishing his throne. And so this chapter starts out with David uh, kind of just acknowledging that the Lord is living in a tent. And he's like, why am I in a house? And the Lord is in a tent. And he says, hey, I'm going to build God a house, right? And he talks to Nathan, his prophet, and Nathan's like, yeah, do it, man. Like, God's with you. Do it. Do what you think is best. Well, then that night, uh, God comes to Nathan and tells Nathan that, I don't want a house, David. I, David is not going to build me a house, right? Like, that's, you know, as we know, Solomon builds him his temple. But David should not buy, build me a house, but I am going to build him a house. Right? And then we get into the promises of the Davidic covenant. So um, if we look in chapter 7, verse 16, it says uh, kind of the, the crux of it all. There's a lot here promised, but your house and your kingdom. So he's talking to David. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words, in accordance with this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So, at the when it's boiled down, in the Davidic covenant, God is promising to David to that his throne will be made eternal and that someone from David's line will be on the throne forever. Right? That God is going to build him a dynasty or a kingdom, right? Forever. So, um, there are, up in there, in this chapter, we see kind of where he's promising, he promises the people again that they will have a land, they will be safe, they will uh, be a nation, they will be great. All those same things that we saw previously promised to Abraham and 
to Moses, they're being reiterated, right? They're being told to David again, like all of those same promises are still here. And in addition to all of that, you're going to have a king who is going to be forever. Um, Just a few interesting things to point out here. Um, Just like Abraham and Moses, David was not chosen because of anything he did, simply because God chose him. Um, and God decided. So you look at verse 8. Uh, now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. So he's saying, you were a shepherd. You were nothing. Like, you weren't some great warrior king that was just amazing and I made king over Israel. No, you were you were literally a boy watching sheep right so he's like i don't know 13 15 somewhere in there when god anoints him to be king he's nothing right um and if you look in verse 9 through 13 it talks about how israel is going to have peace with uh this king with david as a king with all of his descendants as king and that, even that is just a gracious thing, because at this point in history, Israel has been through a lot, right? Like, they've kind of been nonstop, because um, they, you know, with the Exodus, and they came, and they got eventually got to the Promised Land, and then they had to conquer all the land, and then there's just, like, all this fighting. People are trying to get in uh, to take their land back, and they're const- they're literally constantly fighting with somebody, right? And then even once they get a king in Saul, they're fighting and then there's civil war between Saul and David and all of this, like, it's just, it's been a lot. So, you know, God is promising them peace uh, in this reign of David's house. And so that can be seen like in the immediate, they will have peace, but then for eternity, there will be peace as well with Christ. Um, And so he just promises that David's line will always be on the throne. His kingdom will be established forever that there will be times when God will discipline, but his love and his mercy will never depart from David's line. All right, so if you know anything about Old Testament history, you know that that does not last long, right? Uh, So we know that David's descendants, uh, they do go on to be um, kingdom, and the guy, uh, the, the class I was listening to on all of this, he said that um, David's dynasty was the longest, like, of the actual, his descendants was, like, the longest in all of human history. I don't know that, for, but I trust that he knew what he was talking about. Um, but so David's dynasty is a massive part of history, right? And, but eventually they don't live up to the ideals set forth in this passage, right? Over time... They become corrupt, and they eventually lead the people away from God and into idolatry, right? So, if we remember back to the Mosaic Covenant, when the people broke their covenant with God, because they said they were going to follow God and obey his commands, well, now they are no longer doing that. He now does what he says he was going to do, what he promised, and he uh, sends them into exile, Right? So we have like the Babylonians, they come in and they conquer the people and they take them and they, it's like the story of Daniel, that whole time period 
where the people are literally removed from the nation, moved from their land, and taken away to Babylon. Um, and so that we're in to, that is this period of time where they are not experiencing the blessings that they were promised in the Mosaic Covenant because they have broken their side of the covenant, right? Like that is a, that is not, so when someone says it is a conditional covenant, it is in that they had things they had to do, they did not do them and God is now punishing them in that time temporarily, right? So uh, Amos 9, 11 through 15, if you want to turn there, um, is just a really great, passage of the promises though that were still associated with this because even though you think back to when the people were in exile anyone who did truly believe knew that God had promised knew that this was still coming and so even in those moments of exile and extreme like punishment there was hope for this coming Messiah. So Amos 9, 11 through 15. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its branches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. So he's saying, one day I'm going to raise up the booth of David, the line of David that has fallen and repair it. And behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, he who, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. So this, so you imagine this is, Amos is a prophet. So he, you can just imagine these people are like, where is our king? We were promised that our king would reign forever. We promised we would be in this land. We, you know, all they have all these promises. And then they get this prophecy that one day you will be restored. King will come. David's line will be brought back. Uh, it's just a, a reminder to them to look forward to. Do so you think about um, like with uh, what is it? Malachi. See the last the last one that was in the Old Testament when he yeah Malachi. Like he kind of gives his he's the last prophet. And then there's hundreds of years where there's just nothing, right? And so all they have to go on is this, right? They know they have been promised, they've been given these things, but they're just waiting, right? They're just waiting for something, right? And so that's where when Christ comes, when you see in early, you know, John the Baptist and all this, and they're like proclaiming, like, here he is, you know, it's the Messiah. Like, it's just, it's just this amazing moment of a light in the darkness, right? Because 
you, they are, they're here. You know, we have the clarity of thought because we're here. We've seen the realities of it all come through. They're still living in that shadow moment of they know something's coming. They know they've been promised things. They know God is going to bless them, is going to do all this. But until you see the reality of it, you're still kind of in that shadow world. Okay? Any questions? There's a lot. We covered a lot tonight, guys. You should be proud of yourselves. <laughs> uh. The only thing I'll say is as you're reading scripture, you you see in Genesis, um, from the moment the promise was given to Adam and Eve that they would have uh, one who would come to crush the serpent's head, they spend the rest of their reality waiting for him who is to come. And so you can track that through scripture. So even as we're doing it with students um, in our class, we're saying like, okay, she named Cain, she named her first son Cain, which means uh, this one or the here, one. Here he is. Here he is, because she believed him to be the son of God, right? Um, so then you, and you can do it with each of these covenants, particularly with um, the Abrahamic co covenant, we're going through it, um, and the Davidic covenant, we've watched this. Um, we, we did a sort of, how are we doing on land, guys? Well, we're traveling, we don't have land yet. How are we doing on blessing? Well, we don't really have a blessing yet. How are we doing on seed? He hasn't had a son yet, but then you see that grow. So as you're reading scripture and studying scripture, you're also watching the promises of God being fulfilled but through the people of God. Um, and so that's your through line as you watch each of these flesh out throughout Scripture. And that's what has made this Old Testament, as we study through it, so interesting, even for these little kids, is that they're seeing the promises of God fulfilled by God through all God's people. Because when we get to the New Covenant, when we get to us, we need that. We need to be reminded that God has always been operating through His people to fulfill His promises, and He's always He's always been fulfilling His promises, and He's always been using us weak people. So we know that He's still good, and He's still working, and He's still pushing through on His on human history and all those things. But it gives you a sweet thing to kind of see the lens in which to see the scriptures through. Anything else? All right, let me pray for us. Dylan, thank you so much for this evening, Lord. I am just thankful for just the opportunity to come and share this with these ladies. And I just pray that it can be a blessing in their lives. I, I thank you for the blessing that has been in my life. I pray that you will just continue to uh, mold these thoughts over in our hearts and brains um, over the next coming days that we will just have a passion and a desire to dig in further and to um, learn more about you and your scripture and um, how you interact with uh, people throughout your scripture. So in Jesus' name, amen.